The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at TNTradio.live. Thanks for listening and being a part of The Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Good to get Hoodie on the program. I don't know whether you see any of their podcasts, but they're uh, incisive at the very least, and they hit the topics that matter to people in Australia. I've got Lou on the chat line saying, Hoodie, you're a legend. Yeah, and they're so self-deprecating about their organisation of this. They have been given given, given this, giving this um, ultimate coverage. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but they have driven this, which means to me they are organisers. They rallied the troops and they got people there today, and that will grow. It will grow. Other farmers won't know about what's going on in Canberra until they see the news tonight or hear it on radio or even on TNT, and that will change opinion. So fantastic to them. I mentioned with Ed Martin last hour about this incredible custody case, this divorce case, and it's about money, but in the middle of it, it seems as if one parent is trying to use gender transition to pry money from the other parent. That seems to be where the evidence is headed. It's just repulsive and it's mad. And the whole idea of transitioning a child is mad. I don't care what you think. Go and transition once you're 18. If you can't drink until you're at least 21 in most states of the United States, why would you allow a teenager the right to make a decision about changing his sex or her sex? It's nuts. It's absolutely dangerous and nuts. And in many cases, it's irreversible. But have a listen to this. This is nuts too. That's almost the word of the day. Labor MP Charlotte Nichols in the UK has suggested that dead people should be able to change their gender. What? As the growth of gender ideology has been slammed as patently absurd, nuts, I call it, According to the Daily Mail, Miss Nichols, the MP representative for Warrington North, asked if the Gender Recognition Act of 2004 could be edited to allow transgender people who were deceased to be legally remembered by the gender they live by. Stop. It's like this movement, and it occurs in Australia, in the United States, and just about everywhere now, where you've got to change your birth certificate. But all, because although you're born a boy or a girl in 99.99999% of cases, you somehow change your birth certificate to give a different gender, almost as if your birth was different to what it was. So you cha- you're changing history. It's nuts. It's complete nuts. And the same goes with this. Replying to the MP's written question to Parliament last month, Equalities Minister Stuart Andrews said the government did not have plans to make further amendments to the Act. Can you believe that the taxpayers of the UK pay these prats in the Parliament to deal with these issues? Where a person was using their new gender with an organisation prior to their death and that was on their personal records, then we anticipate that the organisation would engage with their family members using the new gender. You cannot change your gender. You are born a male. You remain a male. You are born a female. You remain a female. You can feel like the other gender. You can talk like the other gender. You can look like the other gender. 
You can change your hormones to be closer to the other gender. You can't change your gender. It's binary. It's binary. It makes me so angry, this junk. Um, Mr. Andrew reportedly explained that these organisations could include the NHS. So we're all going to have rules and regulations in place in the UK to make sure that people who have died can somehow place on record that they are not men when they are biological men, that they are not women when they are biological women. Speaking of the recent developments in gender ideology, Sir Liam Fox, the MP for North Somerset, said it is patently absurd, factually inaccurate and a statistical distortion. Spot on Liam Fox. Or should I say Sir Liam Fox? Enough of that rubbish. I'm starting to feel ill. Out of Moscow. This is interesting. Isn't it interesting that the Russians can fight a war but still have plenty of time, resources, and the wherewithal to do things in space. I find that fascinating. Russia says one of its cosmonauts, Oleg Kononenko, has broken the world record for the most cumulative time spent in space. Russia's space agency said 59-year-old Kononenko has now spent more than 878 days and 12 hours in space, surpassing fellow Russian Gennady Padalka, who set the previous record, um, well, it's it's a long one, 878 days, 11 hours, 29 minutes. He, he's beaten it by 30 minutes anyway. Um, that was in 2015. Kononenko has made five journeys to the International Space Station dating back to 2008. Kononenko's current trip to the ISS began on September 15, 2023. By the end of this expedition, the cosmonaut is expected to become the first person to accumulate 1,000 days in space, how much would that fool with your body, would fool with your brain, your mind? A lot, I think. But there you have it. They can break all the records they want. I'm safe on terra firma. Thank you very much. This is Chris Smith on TNT. Abroad or at home, this is your news. By staying silent, we are part of the problem. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, the Australian opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has today slammed Prime Minister Anthony Albanese as the liar in the lodge as he announced that the Liberals will not stand in the way of bigger tax cuts for Australian workers. On these issues and a whole heap more happening in the federal capital today, I've got Federal Senator representing New South Wales for the Liberal Party, Holly Hughes. Holly, welcome to TNT. Hey, Smithy. How are you doing? I'm very well. What's it like to be back? You know, it's like we never left. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the know, holiday long enough. You have a holiday and then two days, you know, back into work, you you feel like when was that holiday again? So, uh, look, it's busy first day back in Parliament for sure. Yeah, uh, and a lot happening outside the Parliament. We've uh, canvassed that on the program before the news. But the big story, even superseding anything that's occurred in Canberra or even Washington, is the fact that King Charles has cancer. Is there much talk around the corridors about that? I think there's a lot of well wishes for the for the king and, and a lot of people hoping that it is something that's been caught early and that will be cured and, and he will be back to his old self uh, very, very quickly. Um, they haven't heard a lot of murmurings, but I, there's obviously been raised that the visit that was planned later this year may not be going ahead now, mm. depending on, on what the prognosis is. But uh, we all certainly wish him a very speedy recovery and, and hope he's back on his feet and well once again very soon. 
Yeah, I think he's uh, destined to go to Canada before Australia. So Canada is certainly not expecting the king to turn up. And I think the same kind of expectation needs to be assumed mm. in Australia as well. It's interesting, you know, you've got Kate recovering from her own illness, um, William um, not being um, stepping up at the moment because mm. of other commitments. And Camilla is in charge of the Commonwealth. What do you think of that? <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's extraordinary to think of the transformation that Camilla has had uh, throughout her time that she's sort of been known to us, if you like, back from when, uh, you know, she, we we obviously, all the public didn't know her, but uh, when Diana certainly outed her as the third person in their marriage and things going on, uh, the public mood towards her has certainly shifted. I mean, I I actually think it's one of the the most beautiful love stories, if you think of, of our generation, that they have clearly uh, been a great support and source of love to each other, you know, for the vast majority of their lives. And the fact that they can now go through this together, I think, you know, is really lovely. Obviously, the circumstances at the beginning were, were not ideal, but uh, she certainly uh, behaved very, very well in the sense that she kept a very stiff upper lip and never commented and never threw a hissy fit or a tantrum, certainly not in public, and, and is now seen with much respect and revere. Now, the Liberals have decided to back Labor's butchered stage three tax changes. And I noticed that there will be some amendments mentioned. No doubt that's part of the deal for agreement. Why did you agree to go along with it? Because it is a broken promise. It is a lie. Look, it is a broken promise and it's it, it really is going to have a very damaging impact going forward for a lot of Australians because what we do know is what they have now done is set to reap $28 billion more in income tax receipts. So you can hardly call something a tax cut when it's actually going to generate more revenue. Uh, and as you know, I think about it in the terms of per year, the, the over $2.5 billion is equivalent to five voice referendums per year on expenditure, uh, <laughs> pretty much of what they have broken the promise. I mean, this is a lie. They you know, the Prime Minister, the Treasurer, so many of his ministers were standing up, and we know the PM said it more than 100 times, but in January still standing up saying we have no plans, we stand by, we will, you know, protect and, and stand by the Stage 3 tax cuts. And I think, you know, there's a few complex issues here, but Stage 3 means that Stage 1 and 2 that were targeted at lower income earners were implemented first. So Stage 1 and Stage 2 have both been implemented already. And Stage 3 was put in place six years ago. There was no cost of living crisis. Uh, it was put in as a time of tax reform to ensure that we were not getting that bracket creep, that aspiration wasn't being dampened. Uh, the fact that the Albanese government is selling this as cost of living relief, I actually find someone who actually did study economics that to bundle tax reform, which is obviously a long-term uh, scaffolding of, of how the tax system works, mm. uh, into a cost of living relief due to the current situation is is conflation of the two. I don't, I don't think they should be brought together. But the reality is the Liberal Party is always the party of lower taxes. We are not going to stand in the way uh, of 
Australians getting some form of tax cut. Uh, we will obviously go to the next election with a uh, package and how that's going to look. Uh, we will make sure that we work through and cost that out properly. See, I've spoken to a lot of people about this and a lot of people who probably earn what would have been considered uh, liable to receive advantage by the Stage 3, original Stage 3 cuts, mm. and they just say there's no reward in Australia anymore to working your guts out and your backside off mm. and earning a decent pay packet because the government ignores you and even punishes you. And Look, this is a classic example of that. This is back to fighting Tories, Albanese, class warfare, yeah. redistribution of wealth. I mean, you put it in whatever terms you want. But you and I are based in Sydney um, most of the time, and we know that 130000 in Sydney, you, you couldn't buy an apartment uh, anywhere, I don't think, if you earn $130,000. You are certainly not a, a high-income earner. And someone who is earning that sort of money in a major metropolitan area would certainly have aspirations to, to maybe earn $150,000 in a couple of years and maybe up to one hundred and eighty a few years after that, and they will now be caught up in this. And remember, a lot of people too do have their, their Monday to Friday job and quite often will be setting up a side business, will be doing some extra work uh, to boost the family income. This will take away uh, their, you know, the real motivation to do that. It's a, it's a real hit to aspiration in this yeah. country. Yeah. So we won't stand in the way of a tax cut. And and quite frankly, the other thing we've always got to consider, if we don't work with the government constructively in some things, they basically have to deal with the Greens and Pocock. And quite frankly, they are unicorn farmers. Yeah, um, exactly, these exactly. guys are wild with no... Pick their hands credentials. off the controls. That's what you've so got you, to you do. You know, you, look, you got to sometimes go with the punches. It's not what we would have done. We would have extended Lamito. This doesn't even go that far to to replace the lower and middle income tax offset that we had in place. We know that the average family has to find an extra $25,000 a year to pay the average mortgage and just exist. Uh, so, I don't think $800 back in tax is going to make a big lot of difference to a lot of them, uh, considering every Australian has seen their real wages drop by over $8,000. Yeah, exactly. So if they, if they feel poorer, it's because they are. And that's across the board. I mean, I, everywhere I go, I always ask people, is anyone here that feels that they are better off than they were 18 months ago? And I'm yet to get someone to put their hand up. Every Correct. single person. It doesn't matter what, you know, where you are on that wage spectrum, whether you're on the 55,000 or 255,000, people are feeling the pinch across the board. Too right. Uh, on the chat box on tntradio.live, Pelly says, the harder you work in Australia, the harder the government kicks you in the teeth. That's probably the best summary statement. Now, did you? what did you make of Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, on the ABC 7.30 last night? He was asked whether the tax cut changes were about bringing back some momentum for the government. I and mean, as, as we all know, you bet it was. He mm. said, we haven't considered it in those terms. I call BS. Well, quite frankly, I don't subject myself to the 7.30 report. <laughs> I, I value my blood pressure too much. <laughs> 
Uh, so I, I didn't watch it and I, I don't actually intend to watch it. Yeah. But what uh, he had to we, say was BS, Holly. Yeah. Oh, look, from what you've said and surmised, but what we've heard coming out of the Labor Party nonstop about why they've made this change to the Stage 3 tax cuts, it is all about, and nothing more, all about the Dunkley by-election. Yeah. It is absolutely designed for one seat in outer Melbourne because the Prime Minister cannot afford to lose that seat. Now, as I'm talking to you, I'm actually quite relaxed. We're not going to have divisions because we've currently got a condolence motion in the Senate for Peter Murphy. And Peter was an absolutely lovely woman. She really was really nice. And there are a lot of us that get along across the aisles. And, and she was one of those ones who was always very friendly and very warm. Uh, and it, she tragically died last year. In a normal situation when that occurs and people go back for a by-election, there's a lot of sympathy for the party that that lost the member. Uh, they have a, a reasonable margin in that seat of over 6%. You know, it, it's almost incomprehensible that Labor would lose that seat, um, and I think, you know, that's probably they will hold the seat, but they know if they get a particularly large swing against them or they do lose the seat that it almost makes Albanese terminal. Yeah. Um, so this is important and this for them and this stage three tax cut is their plea to the voters of Dunkley and that's it. Okay. I want to come back and talk about a doco that's sort of tearing your party up to bits a little bit at the moment. We'll do that after a quick break on TNT. TNT's Mark Morano. This just in. We have a new way that's proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways, streets, and other public areas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this appears to be the most effective way. We have a uh, we have a field shot, a correspondent on the scene. Let's go to clip four and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute. I don't want to see protests shut down, but obviously when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that, you need to be dealt with. I thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. One reason people tune in to TNT Radio is often because they're loyal to a specific show or personality. Our personalities have been a part of people's daily routine and people continue to tune in. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Our next steps to space. This time we go back to the moon to learn to live, to work, to invent, to create. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I've got Holly Hughes with me, Senator from New South Wales. Now, you were no doubt present when Peter Dutton today told the Coalition Room in Canberra that he stands shoulder to shoulder with the Prime Minister on this issue too, which is the suspended death sentence handed down by China to the Australian academic Yang Hangjun, uh, the father of two and pro-democracy writer, was sentenced to death by a Chinese court this week. I'm sorry, but the fact that they would do that the Chinese courts, run, of course, by the Communist Party, tells me that China doesn't give a damn about Australia. 
Yeah, look, I mean, it's just appalling uh, the way that China conducts itself so often. And the fact that I, I, I just hold so little hope out for diplomatic efforts because we've got Albanese who, when our own Australian soldiers and, and naval men were subjected to sonar radar uh, that was put out by a Chinese warship and, and affected our divers, he still won't confirm whether he raised that with President Xi or not. Yeah, he didn't. I don't, I don't think he, well, that's why he won't confirm it, because he didn't. But, you know, he won't confirm it. Uh, but they have the, the, the Labor Party have made so much about, you know, we're restabilizing uh relationships with China. That can't be at the expense of the principles and values and the democratic principles and rule of law that Australians hold so dear. And that is what has happened here. And the conduct of, I mean, look, I know I will never be going back to China. There's plenty of my colleagues who will never go back to China. Mm. It is just, it, quite frankly, I don't think you would feel safe. Um, I know that there are uh, Australian producers like lobsters and, and wine that, that, that those people are trying to get, those businesses are trying to get back into the Chinese market. I think there's a fickleness to the Chinese market. If things don't go their way, they pull support. We've seen that happen. Uh, I think if I was an Australian producer, I'd be definitely looking to alternate markets to try and get my goods or services oh, yeah. out to uh, because I do think it, it, there is a danger there um, and the, the recklessness with which this court case, which was held in secret, you know, the, the fact there's no open justice, we didn't have an Australian diplomat there to witness what was happening. Uh, it's a deferred death sentence. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And uh, there's reports that he's not very well. So, you know, we could find that, that this man will die in jail uh, with very little communication from the Chinese government, yeah. but it'll be interesting to see whether or not that this Labor government actually does have the strength to stand up to China because at the moment it just seems to be all about appeasement when it comes to Albanese towards Xi. Now, and you've got it right about how fickle they are because mm. if Albanese came out of Parliament today, held a press conference and said what he should be saying, which is China doesn't give a stuff about Australia... Mm. They would be so fickle, we'd probably have several other industries slapped with tariffs or some kind of silly subsidy or banned entirely, and we'd be back to square one. That's how fickle they are. Now, yeah. I've been watching this Nemesis doco. I didn't watch the full doco uh, last night, but mm. I did see a few things. And I, what I found quite interesting and fascinating was when Malcolm Turnbull was starting to talk about his uh, joust uh, leading up to uh, a meeting with Donald Trump over those illegal immigrants that Obama agreed to take. And, of course, that was mm -hmm. something that Donald Trump didn't want a bar of. And then, as it turned out, as we know in history, that uh, Malcolm raised it with Donald when um, those in the White House said, don't raise it at all. We're not mm -hmm. taking your illegals. Um, this is how Malcolm Turnbull described it. Have, have a listen. I had never done any business with Trump, but obviously I knew all about him. Big bullying billionaires, they all think they're, you know, God's gift to humanity. And if you suck up to them or knuckle under, they just want more. They famously had a row about the refugee deal, which involved America taking a number of the people from Manus Island which had been done with Obama. 
for whatever reason, President Obama said that they were going to take uh, probably well over a thousand uh, illegal immigrants who were in prisons, and they were going to bring them and take them into this country. And I just said, why? Yeah, as it turned out, Malcolm explained that he was told not to mention it, or Julie Bishop was told he can't mention it. He did mention it. They <laughs> did take um, those illegals, so Turnbull got his way. I thought it was a, a a positive thing that I saw Malcolm Turnbull do, but the rest <laughs> of the documentary so far does not paint Turnbull in any kind of good light, does it? Well, I think the ABC, you know, it's it's definitely not our ABC. It's their ABC. It was always a bit Malcolm's ABC. They were <laughs> they were part of his cheer squad, and I think they continue to do so. Uh, they certainly are are doing what they can to demonise Scott, demonise Tony, and definitely I think they've almost shifted their tone to try and demonise Peter Dutton because Peter's still being in Parliament and now opposition leader. Well, he was called a thug last night. Is he uh, a thug, Holly? He is absolutely not a thug. That is absolutely ludicrous. Um, You know, for anyone who's met Peter, um, he is actually such a lovely person. He... He's one of, and you know, I'll get in trouble for saying this at some point in the future, but there's a lot of politicians on both sides and, you know, I've had the experience on my own side where I've spoken to them about concerns or raised an issue with them and, you know, they they foe interest, uh, sure, give you support, yes, we'll do what we can to help and nothing happens. I have never had that experience with Peter when he was uh, a minister in the previous government and I was a backbencher so I could raise things in the party room and get up and speak to issues. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times that Peter would send me a message and go, Polls, you're so right. Is there anything I can do? Let me know if I can take this through expenditure review committee or whatever it might be. Um, You know, I have always found him to be completely lovely, completely accessible. Um, Look, he's got a reputation as a bit of a hard man. Um, And I got to tell you, would you prefer a hard man when you've got the borders and national security at risk? I mean, we don't want you know, those that are worried about gender diversity today and all those sorts of things. I'd prefer someone who's a bit tough when it comes to looking after Australia's interest, Uh, but certainly on a personal level, he is not that. Malcolm, it's really sad, actually, you know, and I, enough's enough, Malcolm, you know. Yes, get off the stage, you've had your time. You took out Tony Abbott in a coup, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You die by. And the fact that he was complaining about how he was taken out, which was actually so much of his own doing, that he had done the exact same thing <laughs> to Tony Abbott, yet sits there as if woe is me, I yeah. think is just, it, it, the hypocrisy is just next level. And, yes. you know, the ABC, of course, would love to do anything to damage the Liberal Party at any given moment. Um, and I've got to say, I've, I've watched it. I don't think they've actually managed to uncover really any new information I mean, no. everything that's there everyone's already known like it's yeah. getting a bit uh, yawn yes exactly there is that i'll give the next uh installment a miss i'll let you get back to the real job thank you so much for your time all the very best for the week have a good week smithy good on you thank you for that holly holly hughes the uh senator representing new south wales and the liberal party good to have her on the program once again got to take a break for a news break a news update and then i'm going to come back and we're going to talk about the decision today not just by um 
the RBA over interest rates, but it's what the RBA said our year might look like that needs to be focused on and analysed, and I'll do that very, very shortly on the program. This is Chris Smith on TNT. I got news. News. I got news for you. News. News. I got news. I got news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a quick look at your TNT headlines. The Pentagon says Iranian-backed militants continue to fire rockets at US forces in the Middle East. Less than a year and a half after he ascended the throne, Britain's King Charles III has been diagnosed with cancer. God save the king! God save the king! And former US President Donald Trump says he's confident he can flip blue Democratic states ahead of the upcoming presidential election. The common housefly. Caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNTradio.live. Uh, Good to have your company. Just in reference to what we discussed earlier this hour about this ridiculous parliamentarian in the UK saying that those who have died, transgender people who have died, surely can change their death certificate to change their gender. It's just ridiculous. And Paul, thank you so much for sending me this, Paul, from Coffs Harbour in the mid-north coast of change their gender. It's just ridiculous. And Paul, thank you so much for sending me this, Paul, from Coffs Harbour in the mid-north coast of New South Wales. This gender nonsense, he writes, we are all what we are born as, period. Anyone that thinks different needs psychiatric help, period. Worst thing is the nutcases pushing this get into the kids' minds from a very young age. Any teacher carer that does that should be sacked. Couldn't agree with you more, Paul. Thank you very much. You've said a stack of other things. I just don't have time to get to it all because the other big news today out of Australia concerns interest rates. The RBA has left rates on hold at 4.35%, but has mentioned what the year could bring. I thought I'd get an analysis of that and talk about the year ahead with Dr. Natalia Iloshina. She is an economist and a research fellow at the Blockchain Innovation Hub at the RMIT University. She got a PhD in economics from RMIT, a master's of economics from Melbourne University, and a double degree master's of professional accounting and commerce from RMIT, plus a bachelor of economics from Moscow State University, as you're about to learn. Natalia, welcome to TNT once again. Thanks for the great introduction, as usual. (laughs) Now, tell me, rates left on hold, it was no surprise, that was the betting, but what did the RBA say about what rates might do in the months ahead? So, that is, um, the speech itself was quite short, which I was disappointed, but the press conference was quite elaborate, and um, there is no certainty in there, and they don't didn't rule out either movement, so which is quite concerning. So that means that the suggestion is we could see an interest rate rise in the months ahead? 
Uh, they, they again, didn't rule out anything, but the hint was that um, the economy is still unable to cater for the demand that's coming from the population, which is a quite concerning statement. So, yeah, they were, they again, they did mention that they still need to watch the figures, which is understandably so. But, yeah, the way, the way how it was presented, it felt like anything is possible. And the statement that the real reaching midpoint of target inflation rate is not till mid-2025 also kind of pointed towards that anything can happen. So what can a government do? What can a federal government do at this point after the RBA has stated that we're in a little bit of an, um, a nexus here about whether interest rates will rise or fall? What can a government do to ensure that the worst doesn't happen, which is another rate rise? Well, the government continuing doing taking actions that have set the uh, contractionary monetary policy, which is what increasing in, in high interest rates are. And the fiscal policy continues to be expansion, which is exactly opposite, which what we see with this um, uh, tax uh, tax rate movements yes. and bracket creep adjust. Yeah, so, so what it does, is, it enables it encourages people to spend more when we're trying to encourage them to spend less. Yeah, exactly. So we have, again, um, absolutely no communication between monetary and fiscal policy. And um, another thing that was mentioned is that um, what I didn't like about what uh, Bullock said was that mortgage holders are sweating and she understands that, but everyone suffers from inflation. So it sounded like mortgage holders are not everyone, are a minority or there's some sort of uh, Round upon group of people. I wasn't quite sure what she implied. She didn't elaborate any further there, but it did, didn't quite sit well with me as a mortgage holder myself. Well, exactly, because it's mortgage holders more than any other group of Australians that cop the intensity of interest rate rises of high inflation. They have to go and shopping and go to grocery stores and pay more for their goods too. But also, Chris, you know, she mentioned, okay, rent renters suffer from inflation. Renters suffer from interest rates too, indirectly. They just don't see it. Rents, um, if uh, renters are way worse than people who have to pay mortgage in terms of the effects of all what's been happening in the last two years. So it's it's a very um it's it's a statement that's not, I wouldn't call it entirely correct as an economist. That's interesting. That's interesting. I wanted to talk to you about another issue and something that came up in the last few days. Australians are being promised more choice for fuel-efficient cars and electric vehicles under the Albanese government's mandatory pollution caps, uh, another fake way to meddle with the economy. It clouds the future of utes, of course, and so there are a lot of farmers worried about this, and it adds more to the cost of climate action for households. The fuel efficiency standard applies to new car sales and limits the average emissions of a car maker's overall fleet of vehicles sold each year. It's measured in grams or of uh, CO2 per per kilometre. So all those petrol guzzling vehicles, they're about to be penalised. That's about as close to a carbon tax as you possibly get, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. And the most concerning thing is that, um, yeah, the promise that they're going to be uh, savings. Okay, we help the 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 environment, but they, they promise savings because it's a, a electric car compared to uh, petrol vehicles, yeah. which doesn't account to for maintenance, but most importantly so, the absolute lack of charging infrastructure. 
Yes, charging infrastructure. Look, I could talk ad nauseum about the stories that I've heard from viewers and listeners about the lack of infrastructure in the bush, but the same exists in the city, doesn't it? So, yeah, absolutely. And I I live through that. I'd love to buy an electric vehicle, but in the building where I live, which is a ridiculous story. It's a uh, quite new uh, a multi, multi-dwelling building with over 200 apartments, and we are unable to charge our cars there. And I live near Melbourne CBD, where you can imagine if I cannot charge it overnight at home, where the hell I'm going to leave my car park to charge it? Because it takes quite a while, unless it's a some high-speed charging station. And what turned out is that the building that has all these um, green requirements for the uh, permit approval didn't have any capacity to charge electric cars, and <laughs> And the grid that's there, it only allows for only four vehicles to be charged simultaneously. Again, we're talking about a 200-plus apartment building dwelling. 2% available <laughs> to be charged at one time. Imagine the arguments between the residents. <laughs> yeah, this, this is why EVs uh, are not suitable for current day use. And I don't mean that in terms of being able to get around the city. I think they're quite good around the city. I think it works well, especially when you're not travelling in long distances. But if you don't have the infrastructure to charge them up to make them go, you're going to sit in a, a stationary vehicle. Exactly. So what it's going to do, it's going to... Um, uh Make make calls to our ACV to come and charge my vehicle as a day, daily uh, tradition. And also, uh, there's other other issues that's not addressed by the government, such as building insurances don't insure uh, electric vehicle charging because, uh, according to insurance companies, um, a, a lithium batteries not only the fire hazard, but the while they're being charged, they are unbearable fire hazard that's prohibitive to be insured at all. Right. So there's no insurance company that will allow you to drive your EV and get it charged in your building anyway. Yeah, that is. So the building building won't be insured or will be insured at uh-huh. the price because um, the way it works to um, to extinguish a lithium battery that's on fire. And I, I, I don't know why I need to know that as an economist. <laughs> um, you need to actually submerge it in whatever um, substance the fire brigade comes with again i'm an economist i only see the um, monetary side of that but imagine um the car parks the underground car parks are going like four or five stories below the ground and if the car that caught fire is um, mm. on the on the higher level you need to fill the whole car park five levels with whatever liquid substance they have on 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 hand and imagine the amount of damage all these 200 300 cars are all pretty much destroyed and that's all need to be covered by building insurance who's going to insure that yeah so that's insurance what about the infrastructure itself is it a costly thing to put in infrastructure to the degree that you know our government at the moment wants so our the the problem was uh, we tried to price the switchboard that will reallocate um, the the existing supply, the, this tiny extra supply to the building uh, between the cars, so more cars can be charged at the same time, and that was priced at quarter million dollars. Oh, <laughs> wow! And then you've got the problem of of temperature. So if you go to a cold place like Chicago the charging stations get frozen over and can't charge the cars anyway. 
Well, I don't know what's uh, even with the when the hot temperatures how it's going to react. I just had my iPhone today stopped uh, working for for some time, complaining about temperature inside my car. So let alone what's going to happen to lithium batteries. They're so temperamental in general. Yeah, and I brought this story to people's attention last week in terms of EVs. But the chairman of Toyota said that he cannot see how electric vehicles will be more than 30% of the market. That's not what we're being told by the current federal government, are we? Look, that's not what we are told, but, you know, supply and demand, you cannot force people. It's not, uh, we still live in a democracy and free market economy. It's um, one way or another, if you cannot charge it, so people will price their time. Like, I don't have two hours a day to go park my car and stand next to it and just uh, think about life so that I can drive somewhere. So I will, I will, many people will stick to petrol vehicles, even with the high price of petrol and with the extra taxes or whatever they impose. And if that's a new car's limitation, it's also not clear if that's only going to be for new cars that will just drive the price for secondhand cars up. And that's, that's, will that will take a lot of time unless there is infrastructure, unless it's convenient um, to, to get the program through and working. Uh, the the ec- economic conclusion <laughs> is no matter what we do to try and save the planet, if that's what we need to do, it's going to cost us a bomb. It always would cost everything you want. I'm as an economist, any pleasure, any enjoyment, any happiness will eventually cost. And so is fresh air and uh, good good climate. All right. I'll let you get back to what you have to do. And uh, thank thank you you. so much for your time and your rundown on EVs. Interesting (laughs) insight. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. There you go. She's an economist, but she did very well in terms of electric car technology and what's required in terms of infrastructure. And the infrastructure has got years and years and years to catch up for all of this, which makes it so impractical. What Boris Johnson was thinking of in the UK when four years ago, he told people that we're going to make sure you've only got to buy an electric vehicle as a new car by 2030. He was nuts as well. What was he thinking? He obviously did not talk to the industry or the stakeholders because they would have told him you're mad. And now that's been set aside by Rishi Sunak, thankfully, because it won't work. It's not practical. It's like so many, you know, wind farms and uh, and solar-powered farms and everything offshore, it never works out when it comes time to start building them or start making them happen because they've been shrouded in evangelism and they haven't been scrutinised properly for efficiency, for economic efficiency in particular. This is the problem with all this green this green evangelism. And for what? For what? As I've said a thousand times here, for nothing. You'll do nothing to change the temperature of the planet if that's what you think we need to do. I've got to get to a break. I've got to cool down. I'll find a nice cool drink from somewhere. And then we'll come back and hopefully take some of your calls because there's a lot on the agenda today. Um, And uh, not just from Australia, but also right around the world. Maybe you want to have uh, a say on what's occurring with Donald Trump and these indictments, which seem to change just about every week, depending on what the prosecutor decides or what holidays they're about to go on, as we discovered today. You can call in from the US or Canada on 1-888-201-6425. You can dial in from the UK, 033-0024-1026. What is the take-up? Uh, I could find out very quickly myself, but you tell me, if you're listening from the UK just after five o'clock in the morning there. What is the take-up of EVs? You're probably seeing plenty of Teslas, 
but are there a lot around and do they find charging stations in every supermarket you see and and every uh, apartment building? I doubt it. I doubt it very much. And from Australia and New Zealand, one 800 They're our numbers. Jump on, have your say. A very democratic form of media this is, right here on TNT. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Oh no, could the squad soon be a thing of the past? Well, based on the hot water that Democrat representatives Cori Bush from Missouri and Ilhan Omar, her brother's wife from Minnesota are in, all signs point to yes, outcome likely. What am I talking about? Well, according to Representative Byron Donalds of Florida, Cori Bush has diverted campaign funds into some questionable security expenses. And Omar was filmed in Somalia saying she's Somalian first and Muslim second. Didn't seem to be a mention of the United States or her oath of office to the Constitution in there. The sooner we're well shot of these people, the better. They're clearly here based on intersectionality, not intellect, and nothing will become them so much as they're leaving. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk TNT. There are 16 million children struggling with hunger in America. That's one in five daughters, sons, neighbors, and classmates who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Yet billions of pounds of good food go to waste every year. It's time we do something about it. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks that helps provide meals to millions of kids and families in need. Visit feedingamerica.org to help them feed even more. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Focused on the facts. Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Thank you, John, from far north Queensland in Mariba. Lovely place, Mariba. Beautiful part of the world. Thank you, John. John says, great to listen to you, Chris. Just found out you're back, and I like what you have to say. I'm glad, John. Spread the word. Grab the family. Grab your friends. Let them tune into TNT and see how real radio and television should be done. Now, Alex Zaharoff Roy, who'll be on the program tomorrow in our tech segment, uh, just wanted to remind me on the subject of EVs. Now, as I say, EVs for city dwellers make a great deal of sense if you can charge them, if you can find a charger, right? And, you know, if you want to go to great expense, you can create your own charger in your own garage. You can go ahead and do all of that. But if you want to find out about EVs, there's a uh, terrific EV show on this weekend. It starts on Friday, goes through until Sunday in Sydney. It's at Sydney Olympic Park between the 9th and the 11th of February, Friday to Saturday. Everything Electric Australia, it's called Home Energy and EV Show. So if you're into all of that and you're curious, I'm curious about it. I'm curious about why it doesn't work like it should, about how dangerous it is, about how far it doesn't go. But I'm also curious about what the potential holds for the very far future. And that is far future. It's not near future which is why Boris Johnson deserves a kick in the backside for what he said four years ago. Um, so thank you, Alex, for that, and we'll catch you on the program tomorrow. Um, Uber. There are a lot of people who may not use Uber, and it's interesting when you think about Uber. Uber doesn't really have a service where you can dial a number and get an operator and say, excuse me, operator, can I get an Uber from my house to go to the shopping centre, 
Have you ever thought of that? Like in the old days, you'd dial a cab. You'd have the cab's number. On every you know side of every cab was the number. You dialed the number. You got a real person. Remember those days when you dialed telephone numbers and got real people, human beings? Remember human beings? Um, well, that doesn't happen with Uber. But the tech giant will launch its ride hotline today in a bid to appeal to Australians over 65 who do not use ride-sharing services and prefer to book transport over the phone. Isn't that interesting that they are launching into the future in 2024 by allowing you to pick up the telephone and dial an Uber? Uh, Uber's new service will come less than a year after the company launched a similar scheme in the United States. So um, that is already happening in the US, which is interesting and has been welcomed by a seniors advocacy group in Australia who said not everyone is able or comfortable using apps. And that's right. Uh, my late mum had great difficulty using apps. And, you know, usually a lot of old people are worried that if they press the app or press it the wrong way or press the wrong app, that something will blow up or something will go wrong. Kids don't have that discipline in them, which is why they use devices so well because they don't they're not afraid to experiment try things and you can always get back to the main menu and start again uh, uber australia and new zealand managing director dom taylor said today the company identified some older australians were not using the service because they were not confident in navigating its app the launch of a phone booking service could feel like a throwback to the days of ordering taxis before Uber's launch in 2012. 2012, was it that far ago? Uh, but he could encourage more people to use and try the service. It's a bit of a back to the future moment, he said. Sure is. There are groups within the community that are less open to using apps for a number of reasons and can still use our core product to help them move around. So there you go. Uh, back to the future indeed. Isn't that funny? Now, um, out of Reuters today, I wanted to bring you this particular story, which I think is important. Uh, Washington, uh, the United States intends to launch further strikes at Iran-backed groups in the Middle East. They don't say Iran. They never want to mouth the words an attack on Iran. It's all indirect. It's all via proxies on other territory. I wonder what Trump would have done. But anyway, not to say that I'm pushing for a full-scale war between the United States and Iran. But, you know, they're, 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 they're just nibbling away. You know, you either, you either, you know, attack or you don't attack, but they like to nibble away and cause all sorts of drama with the, with the countries that are being nibbled at. So you create a whole heap of enemies all at the same time. So there are a lot of negatives with the way the United States is retaliating here. But the White House National Security Advisor said, that um, there'll be more to come in the next two days. Uh, and as I mentioned yesterday, the US and Britain unleashed attacks against 36 Houthi targets in Yemen a day after that first military hit on Tehran-backed groups in Iraq and Syria. So that seems to be the latest on all of that. There is more to come. Um, I do want to talk just briefly about King Charles for those who are interested. And I know a lot of people are talking about it today. Uh, but he's been diagnosed with a cancer that they haven't stated. And, you know, I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. Um, 
if you're going to be open about this and be honest about it, why wouldn't you say it's a particular cancer? Because at the end of the day, if he can be saved and it's not life-threatening and you hope it's not, he could become a wonderful ambassador for that kind of cancer. But anyway, um, he's suspending his public engagement to undergo treatment, casting a shadow over a busy reign that began less than 18 months ago after the death of his mother. The announcement made by Buckingham Palace came a week after the 75-year-old sovereign was discharged from a London hospital following a procedure to treat an enlarged prostate. So it seems as if they've come back with a few um, biopsies that they may have taken at the time and realised that he does have cancer in other places. Uh, the palace did not disclose, as I say, what form of cancer he has, but palace officials said it was not prostate cancer not prostate cancer. Doctors detected the cancer during the procedure and the king began treatment right away. He uh, began treatment on Monday. News of Charles's diagnosis reverberated through Britain, which after seven decades of Elizabeth's reign has begun to get comfortable with her son. So it's all very changeable. And we've got a situation where, of course, um, you've got... Uh, People like um, Camilla, who'll be in charge at this stage of the royal family, of the monarchy, of the Commonwealth. That's what Camilla is in charge of today. That will change, of course, as William becomes available in the uh, weeks ahead. Now, last December, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing was announced for February 20 and 21 at the UK High Court talking about the UK, to determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he'll be extradited to the United States. Now, TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice broadcasting and covering the entire two days, if it's required, the two days of hearings. And then we'll be broadcasting from various locations throughout London as well. Um, we'll be lighting the fuse for freedom on today's News Talk TNT. Just a little bit of research that you might find uh, interesting. It comes out of the United States. It's revealed the best states to start a business. And if you have your eyes on Missouri, you're very lucky because Missouri is listed as the top state to begin a startup or a business. Business valuation experts at Eaton Venture Services analyze data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics to discover the number of established deaths recorded in June 2022 in each state. The figures were weighed against the population to determine the final ranking. And so Missouri comes out on top, which is quite bizarre. I would have thought quite bizarre. Now, we were discussing also how bad the economy is going. Yesterday, we were discussing, um, well, discussing with Natalia how inflation is hurting Australians, in particular with interest rates. Well, um, things are not going so well on the tech side, and I'll talk to Alex Zaharoff-Royt about this specifically on the program tomorrow. But after reaching a record $730 billion in sales revenue in 2021, the global demand for IT devices, so that's the whole gamut, it includes desktop PCs, laptops, tablets, and smartphones, has been sh shifting back and forth. Although the market significantly recovered after a massive 2022 sales slump, the negative trend is expected to continue throughout 2024. So all this business about, oh, we're going to bounce back in 2024, you better be careful um, wishing that because it may only remain a wish and a dream. According to data presented by 
stock stock analytics. Uh, global spending on PCs and mobile phones is expected to drop by $10 billion in 2024. $10 billion. That is just absolutely amazing. Um, the economic uncertainty and pandemic-caused layoffs triggered a huge spending drop in 2022, with total sales revenue falling by a massive $40 billion year over year, the biggest decline for decades. But they're talking about a $10 billion drop in 2024. Before you get carried away about a new year and the promises of a better economy, you just better hang on to your cash a little while until things actually do improve because things are tough out there and they're going to be tough for most of 2024 right around the world by the sound of it. I've got to get out of here. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for watching or listening. Dean Macken is up next on today's News Talk TNT. See you later.